way before. And it has worked out wonderfully well, thanks to all the folks who brought the food and all of that. And uh, I will say this to you, because of uh, the style of the meetings that we chose to do it and the time constraint because kids go to school and so on, uh, the QA time has not been, uh, we've not been able to give that this morning and we won't be able to do it tonight. However. Tomorrow night at the concluding session, we'll start at 6.30, and uh, we'll finish. I'll be tying it all together, giving some personal illustrations from my own life. It'll be a little bit of testimonial tomorrow night. Um, but there's going to be a QA time at the end of the session tomorrow evening. So if you have a question that comes to your mind, I'm not gonna ask you to try to remember it, at least I can't, at my age I can't remember anything. I have to write it down. So if you'll write it down, we'll try to answer, we won't be able to answer them all, but we'll answer as many as we can tomorrow night, okay? So in all seriousness, you just continue your eating and enjoy the food, and uh, I've already said, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, I'll let that be your blessing also, okay? Uh, it's just been fun to do it this way. So if you can and have a place where you can open your Bible there, do so to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I want to read a passage of Scripture that will be the basis of our remarks for this section. <clears throat> now remember, we have looked already, and I don't have to give a review now because you were here this last hour, but we've looked at the fact that the only way the Holy Spirit comes to live in us is when we approach God exactly the way the children of Israel did, through that unique door, into that unique place where the blood was sprinkled, so that the law has been covered. And when the law was covered by the blood on the Day of Atonement, the glory of God came down. That's what happened to us when we trusted Christ. I was only 13, lived in Oklahoma City. Uh, somebody asked me, uh, not tonight, but another time, <laughs> did my parents name me Paul because of an affinity for Paul the Apostle? Uh, no, my dad and mom were alcoholics. In fact, my parents divorced three times. Uh, they never remarried anybody else. They always remarried. They couldn't live with each other, and they couldn't live without each other. I spent the first 10 years of my life keeping them from killing each other. Uh, in fact, I didn't know who Paul the Apostle was and uh, never would have if my older sister, Betty Jo, had not started dating a Baptist preacher. And when your older sister, she's seven years older than I am, starts dating a Baptist preacher, she starts dragging all of her siblings off to church. And so one night in August of 1953, my brother-in-law, he wasn't my brother-in-law then, but he became my brother-in-law, uh, was preaching revival, and uh, I came to know the Lord that night. I didn't realize what happened to me, as you may not have realized what happened to you. I wondered if it was a real, if it was real, and you may have too. But as I've walked, as I've walked and I've lived and explored the scriptures and so on, I've come to see what the scripture says about me is the way God sees me. My problem is, I know me too, through my eyes of failure, 
and messed up choices and so on. What I'm learning is that uh, it is a life that we're to live by faith. And faith is always in an object. The amount of faith you have is never important. I'd rather have a little faith in the right object than a great big amount of faith in the wrong object. Let me illustrate. Suppose there were a frozen lake over here. It was a, let's say it was a normal winter in Joplin. It's not. But let's say it was. There's a pond over here that's frozen solid. Scott wants to show me the pond. So we go out there and he said, Brother Paul, I think that ice will hold you up. Now, let's say that I've got faith in that ice. And I mean, I say, I think it will too. And I run and jump out on the ice, only it's a half an inch thick. And I go straight through. Nothing wrong with my faith. I had bukus of it. I just put it in thin ice. The object of my faith was thin ice. But suppose we go to that pond and Scott says, Brother Paul, I think that ice will hold you up. And I don't have much faith. I say, oh, Scott, I don't know. I'm not sure. Oh, I think it will. Well, I don't know. So I test it. Nothing happens. I'm a little scared. I take another step and another step. So far, so good. Is it real? Is this happening? What am I doing? It's silly. So after a little bit, I say, Scott, throw me that drill, an old-fashioned hand drill. He throws it to me. I say, throw me that yardstick. He throws me the yardstick. I take the drill, and I drill down through the ice. Well, the ice is 10 inches thick. What happens to my faith when I realize how thick the ice is? My faith begins to grow. My confidence in the object begins to grow. Ladies and gentlemen, God would rather have you have a little faith in him than a whole lot of faith in your own capacity to develop your own righteousness. That's thin ice. What he wants you to do is trust him that what he says about you is what is real and true. And when you agree with him in faith, believing, you begin to walk, experiencing the reality of the life that you didn't think you'd ever be able to live because you can't. It isn't your life, it's his being lived through you and the power and the person of the Holy Spirit only released to be that power as you choose to obey. And when we choose to obey and move toward and do what is called, we're called to do, his Holy Spirit is released. Now that's Christianity. But we still got a problem. Because the Holy Spirit lives within us, but we still fail. We still mess up. You can call it the sins that come to us. Now, in the Old Testament, remember, the Old Testament had the tabernacle. When they killed the lamb, They then moved after that sacrificial lamb was given. The blood was sprinkled. Now watch. The law was covered. And 
What happened is they experienced the labor. There it is. It's just before they entered into the holy place. Now remember, the tabernacle was two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. All the priests could go there. The second room was called the holy of holies. Only the high priest could go there. Only one day a year. But the scripture says, now watch this. When our Lord, the Lamb of God, died on the cross... The veil in the temple that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn asunder from top to bottom so that in the new covenant, when priests, by the way, that's us, every Christian is part of the royal priesthood. Jesus is our high priest. Only when we abide in the holy place where priests are to abide, we experience what they weren't able to in the old covenant, the very reality of God because the veil has been torn asunder. But ladies and gentlemen, you have to enter into the place of abiding. And in the Old Testament, there was the picture of something that was necessary, and that was the brass laver. Now, what was it for? When they killed the lamb, by the way, in the old covenant, the priest assisted the high priest in killing the lamb. In the new covenant, our lamb died and no priest assisted him. No priest assisted him. Somebody asked me one time, who killed Jesus? Did the Jews kill him? If they did, want to hate him. That's so silly. Did the Roman soldier kill him? No. Who killed Jesus? Nobody. He laid down his life willingly. No man took it from him. As our high priest, he laid down his own life as the sacrificial lamb and then took his own blood into the holy of holies of heaven and sprinkled it. Now that's metaphorical. For the reality of heaven, the law has been covered by the blood of Jesus so we trust him. That's at the altar. When you knelt, I did as a 13-year-old boy at the cross. Oh, now, it happened years ago. But the cross that Jesus died on 2,000 years ago was my experience in 1953. I knew Jesus died for me. I wasn't sure why altogether, but I knew I needed it. And I trusted it. And the Holy Spirit came to live in me. But I wound up having a problem. I'm sure there's one or two of you that has it, that might have it also. And that is, I tend to sin. I tend to fail. I tend to fall short of the mark in my actions. Now listen carefully to me. When you became a Christian, the Bible says all of your sin, singular, that's the sin nature, has been covered by the blood. But from the day of your salvation to the time you get home to heaven, you're going to have a problem. You're going to tend to get dirty as a child of God. And in order for you to move into the place of abiding in Christ, the holy place, where you enjoy him, you have to experience the brass labor just like the Old Testament priests did. When they came to the labor, they washed their hands and their feet. We don't wash our hands. 
because we didn't help kill him. We only have to wash our feet because we walk in the glory of his grace. But we do tend to get dirty. From the time we're saved to the time we get home to heaven, we're going to have a problem. It's called the acts of the will, which are sins that come to the believer, and they'll keep us from enjoying the very presence of God. So where is our labor? Here it is. John 13. Look at it. Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And the scripture says that uh, he has his disciples in a place where he wants to teach them something. And verse 3 of John 13 says, Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things to his hand, that he, was about to, he had come from God and was about to go back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, wrapped it around his waist. He began to pour water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said, Lord, now the King James says, Dost thou wash my feet? What Peter said in plain English was, Lord, what in the Sam Hill are you doing? What are you doing? Now get this picture. It's the disciples in the upper room. They've instituted the Lord's Supper. Judas has gone out. Jesus takes a basin of water, takes off his outer garment, takes a towel, wraps it around him, gets down beside the first disciple, washes his feet, wipes it with a towel, moves to the next one, washes his feet, wipes it with a towel, moves to the next Finally comes to Simon Peter. He is about to wash his feet, and Peter says, Lord, what are you doing? Now, Peter's trying to be spiritual. In other words, he ought to wash Jesus' feet, not Jesus wash his. He's trying to be spiritual. Have you ever been around people trying to be spiritual? They get this weird look in their face, you know. <laughs> they start using this weird language, this Christianese, and I don't even think they know what they're talking about sometimes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, listen, listen to me. Seriously, don't ever try to be spiritual. The work of being spiritual is not your work. It's already been done by the presence of the Holy Spirit who lives within you. The Father declares you to be spiritual. 1 Corinthians 2 says that. Galatians 6, you that are spiritual, restore a fallen brother. You see, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever noticed in 1 Corinthians, Paul was writing to that 1 Corinthian church who were getting drunk at the Lord's table and uh, were bragging about sexual immorality and were arguing with each other in the courts of law. And in verse 1 it says, I write unto you, saints. Saints? Man, they don't not act like saints to me. Why would Paul call them saints? Because Paul wants them to know who they are by the grace of God, not be defined by how they're acting. He's calling them who they are by the grace of God. And he says, you have been graced, you have been gifted, and you've been guaranteed to the day of the coming of the Lord. I beseech you, therefore, you saints, change your way of living. Why? Because you live saintly when you know you are saintly. When you are spiritual, you don't live saintly or spiritual in order to become saintly or spiritual. You've been declared. I heard of a woman, richest woman in America, was said in the early 1900s, 
The portfolio was $100 million. That was wealth back then. That's just a good NBA contract today. <laughs> I mean, she had money, unbelievable. And her boy lost his leg because gangrene set in from a cut, a wound. And the reason gangrene set in is because she spent so much time trying to find a free clinic, unwilling to pay for what was needed. In other words, she lived like a pauper when her portfolio declared her to be a millionaire. Do you understand that the grace of God has declared us to be spiritually millionaires? And sometimes we live like paupers. We mess up so royally. So Jesus kneels beside Peter, who's trying to be spiritual. Lord, what are you doing? In effect, he's saying, I should be washing your feet. Now, notice Jesus said, follow along there. What I'm doing now, you don't understand now, but it won't be long before you do. That's what he said to Peter. And so the scripture says, Peter looked at him and said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Ladies and gentlemen, be careful of telling God never. I told God never one time, I said, Lord, if you'll get me out of this cemetery, I mean the seminary, I will never get in the city limits of Fort Worth again. Do you know I was pastoring a few years later, three minutes from that seminary. The Lord has a wonderful sense of humor. Peter said, Lord, you'll never wash my feet. Now look what Jesus said to him. Peter said, uh, Jesus said to Peter, if I wash you not, Jesus answered him, if I wash you not, King James says, you'll have no part with me. A better translation says, if I wash you not, you will have no ability to fellowship with me. You'll not enjoy me. Whoa. Wait a minute, Peter said. Then Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Isn't that just like Peter? Well, if I've got to have my feet washed to have fellowship with you, don't just wash my feet. Wash me all over. Give me a bath. Look at the next verse. Jesus said to him, I think with a chuckle in his voice, he was, Jesus was probably thinking, Peter, you're one of us. You're one of, one of those boys. You really are. <laughs> but look what he said to him. Jesus said, he that has been, King James says, washed, is the Greek word bathed. That's what Peter said. Lord, don't just wash my feet. Give me a bath. Jesus said, he that has been bathed doesn't need anything except his feet washed. And you're all bathed except one, Judas Iscariot, for he knew who should betray him. Now notice, after he had washed their feet, verse 12, and had taken his garments and sat down, he said, do you know what I've done to you? Obviously they didn't. He said, if you call me Master and Lord, that's good because that's who I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. In other words, whatever Jesus was doing in that foot washing experience, you and I are to do to each other. Well, what was he doing? Now, Baptists, my historical rootage, says, no, it's not a literal foot washing. He's just teaching humility. 
We know that and we're proud of it. <laughs> no, he's not teaching humility there. Now you can make that application, but that's not what he's teaching. Listen carefully to what he's teaching. Peter said, Lord, give me a bath. If I have to have my feet washed to have fellowship, don't just wash my feet, give me a bath. Jesus said, you don't need a bath. You're all bathed except Judas. Now, is the bath literal or is it symbolic? Was he saying Judas hadn't had a bath that morning and the rest of them had? No. The bath is a symbol, a picture, a metaphor for salvation. Judas was never saved. He was a demon from the beginning. What Jesus is saying is you that have been saved don't need anything except your feet washed. Now, wait a minute. What do you mean? Is that literal? Do we come together and literally walk? Well, if the bath is symbolic, then the foot washing can't be literal because you can't interpret in the scripture one thing literal, one thing symbolic in the same passage. It's the context that shows. Well, the context shows the bath is not literal, it's symbolic. And you have to see the foot washing as not literal, but symbolic. So what's it symbolic of? Listen now, Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no fellowship with me. In the Old Testament, what was it that they had to do in order to have fellowship in the holy place as priests were to be? They had to wash themselves clean. In other words, the dirt that had come to their feet in walking from the altar to the place of God, they'd gotten dirty. They had to have it washed away. Now, it's not sin. Sin is gone. That's your nature. New in Christ. It's your acts of the will from the moment of your salvation to the day you get home to heaven. You're going to get dirty, and so am I. And we're going to have to be willing. 1 John 1, 9. Lord, I really did blow it. Now, you don't have to say, please forgive me. What you have to do, what you need to do is by faith say, Thank you for your forgiveness even over this because all of our forgiveness is in the blood that Jesus shared on Calvary. But we have to be willing to confess. The word confess, homo legeo, means to say the same thing God says. Homo, meaning the same. Lego means to say. To say the same thing that God says about it. In other words, if I get angry at Mary and I express that anger in a, in, a, in a way that is demeaning to her. Now listen, unless I'm willing to admit with God, I blew it. You say, well, what did she do? What did she say? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Cause is never justification for my action. I have to be willing to take responsibility for my action and say, Lord, I blew it. Oh, man, I blew it. I confess that to you. And you know what the Father says? You know what Papa says to me? Forgiven! Hallelujah! He doesn't say, I forget. He says, you're forgiven! Don't forget that. I walk in the glory of that. And ladies and gentlemen, you're seeing a man who's had to learn the hard way on this. I mean, it has been hard. I've had to call stuff in me sins. I, I used to chalk it up to my personality. I used to chalk it up to my 
childhood. I used to chalk it up to a whole lot of things until the Holy Spirit began to show me, unless I'm willing to really do labor work, I'll never enjoy the reality of the Christ who indwells me by his Holy Spirit. I used to have my children under our, my thumb. I was the preacher. My kids are going to act right, do right, be right. Why? Because they got to be a testimony to the ministry. That's so ridiculous. I'll never forget the time God broke my heart about 25 years ago. On a Thanksgiving morning, we were there. On Thanksgiving day until wee hours of the morning. And I was repenting to my oldest three kids. My caboose, Brett, nine years after the other, got in on all the grace. Well, he better never mess up. I'll kill him because we showed him real grace. The rest of them, we were legalistic. And I had to I had to ask their forgiveness. And I did. And I didn't use my past. I didn't use my parentage. I didn't use anything that happened. I came to a place where I was willing to say, I've blown it. I've been angry. I've been controlling. Will you forgive me? My daughters, my son in brokenness forgave. I'm so glad. Now here's the reason that's important. Because remember Jesus said in the rest of this passage, I've done to you. I've been willing to clean you up, to wash you. In other words, I've been willing to forgive you of the mess in your life. Now I want you to be willing to do that with others. Be willing to forgive them the messes they create. See, I found out, ladies and gentlemen, that it's a whole lot easier to get forgiveness from God for my personal sin than it is to give forgiveness to someone who has wounded me. A whole lot easier to get it from God than it is to give it to another person. She's 29 yesterday. My granddaughter. Born on the worst case of spina bifida Waco, Texas had ever seen. Has never walked a day in her life, never will. Will never marry, will never bear children. Had born three times the normal size because of the water that accumulated on her brain. We got the call, drove from Tulsa to Waco. It was a tragic experience. God has worked wonders in it all. I won't tell you about some of it until tomorrow night, but I'll just say this to you. When she was nine years old, she was sexually assaulted by a Baptist preacher, subsequently spending many, many, many years in the hospital. When we got the word about that nine-year-old incident, we left where I was pastoring, drove where they were living, and if I could have gotten my hands on him, I would have killed him. I'm afraid I would have killed him. I was so angry at him. Long story short, he was charged, found guilty, pled out, went to prison. I asked my daughter, family, if they would mind if I confronted him. They said, no, Dad, because I know this passage. I've taught it. I've been teaching it for years. You don't just ask God to forgive you the stuff you do. 
You have to be willing to forgive another the stuff they do to you. Be willing, you have to be willing to do that to what? Become a Christian? No. To enjoy the relationship you already have with God. You'll never be able to fully enjoy it as long as there's an unwillingness. Now, ladies and gentlemen, don't hear me say that you ought to go out and forgive. Everybody hurts you. Oh, that's not easy to do. I've been on a journey of giving forgiveness for years, and I haven't yet come to the place where I'm comfortable with it. I'm still learning. You do know, don't you, that when someone hurts you, forgiveness, you know how long it takes? It's according to the depth of the pain. Somebody else bows you in an elevator, and they say, oh, forgive me. Ooh, man, that hurt. That's okay. Well, don't do it again, you know. But that's okay. That's all I understand. Someone sexually assaults your granddaughter. That's not a punch in the ribs and an elbow and an elevator. I'd work through. I know what forgiveness is. I know the forgiveness of God. Papa has forgiven me of more than you'll ever know. And I worked in my own heart at forgiving her. I was angry and I worked through it and I I'm going to choose to forgive, releasing the power of the Holy Spirit. I know that's real. I've experienced it multiple times, and I was going to experience it that day. I went to see him in prison, sat across from him. I'll be, I was as mad as I was when it happened a year before. I still wanted to kill him. I thought I'd forgiven him. I had. I had. Ladies and gentlemen, real forgiveness Never has a period. You don't forgive, period. You forgive, comma, and forgive, comma, and forgive, comma. The way the New Testament says it is 70 times 7. Don't try to multiply that. It's a metaphor. It's a picture. You keep on forgiving. If, if this man's image comes to my mind, name comes to my mind, the day before I die, I told the pastor yesterday, I'll still have to forgive him again. That's the depth of the pain. So it's not achieving giving forgiveness. It's being on the journey to learning to forgive that God asked us to. In other words, be willing to learn to wash someone else's feet when they brought mess into your life. Now, that doesn't mean you subject yourself to abuse. It doesn't mean you allow them to cross boundaries. That would demean you. That's not what that's saying at all. It's simply saying, however, you have to have a heart of a willingness of wanting to forgive, even if it's within boundaries. This is why a woman should never let a man cross the boundary of physical abuse. Law has been established for the punishment of guilty for a criminal action. Don't ever let a criminal action be given against you and not take it to the courts of law. The Bible doesn't forbid that for believers. Now in relational matters, of course the church works with those. But ladies and gentlemen, <coughs> forgiveness is not when we see everybody exactly the way they ought to be. It's learning that we're going to have to learn inside us to forgive even if they could care less. Even if they never ask. Now why? Because we've been forgiven unconditionally. And Jesus said in the new covenant, 
in the New Testament, all the pictures in the old and the reality of the new, you love as you've been loved and you forgive as you've been forgiven. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage. He's talking about being willing to deal with the dirt in your life. It's called confession of sins. Has nothing to do with salvation. Has nothing to do with going to heaven or hell. Your relationship with God is eternal in nature. Why? Because when Jesus took his own blood into the holy of holies of heaven, he will never again take his blood. Hebrews 10 says it this way. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and been made partakers of the Holy Ghost, if they should fall away to renew themselves again under repentance, seeing they crucify the Son of God afresh and put it to an open shame. Hebrews 6, 4 to 6. Have you ever wondered about that? Something is impossible for somebody who? It is impossible for those who have been made partakers of the Holy Ghost. Partakers of the good word of God. And by the way, Schofield Bible in the footnotes says this is those people who come to the very point of being saved and are not really saved. I disagree with the good doctor. Those are participles in the Greek language that were used to Jesus when he said he participated in death. He didn't almost die. He actually died. This is talking about people who are not almost saved. They're actually saved. Something's impossible for people who are actually saved. What? If they should fall away to ever get it again. Why? Jesus would have to come out of heaven, be born of a virgin, live a perfect life, die on the cross, take his blood back because one sacrifice is sufficient for one entrance alone. You can never enter into a relationship on the basis of a sacrifice twice. They killed a different lamb every year. And the one lamb who died for you has done it for an eternal relationship. But we still struggle with sins. But it's not a matter of heaven or hell. It's a matter of our enjoying the holy place. The very presence of God in us. We have to be willing to deal with our dirt. And we have to be willing to forgive others who have dirt against us. Who bring their dirt into our life. Now, ladies and gentlemen, don't hear me put on you, shame on you for not forgiving that person to hurt you. Go out and you forgive them. I'm not saying, I am not saying that. I know. If somebody told me when I found out about my daughter, now, Brother Paul, you're just going to have to forgive them. I think I'm going to kill them. <laughs> <coughs> Forgiveness is a journey. It's not a little flippant thing you do. It's a journey. And you'll keep on learning the forgiveness of Jesus till the day you meet him face to face. And we're to learn to forgive one another. Now, ladies and gentlemen, it isn't easy. But forgiveness is walking into the very relationship that's so real and we long to have. Forgiving others is a response from our brokenness of being forgiven ourselves. We have to be willing to deal with the dirt. When I teach this, I usually end it by saying, I want you to draw a circle around yourself. 
Nobody else, just you. Uh, have them imagine a little dot in front of them. Start to the left and go around, all the way around. Now, thinking of only the person in that circle, is there anyone about whom you have said, I will never forgive them for what they did to me. And you have spent your life backing away from that thing or person. All I'm asking is would you be willing to take a step toward and another step toward not doing anything except taking a step. I want to forgive. I want to release them from that. Now they may be dead and gone. They may be alive and well. What they are is not your responsibility. What God is doing in us is bringing us to freedom. It's called the labor. If Mary and I didn't know this reality in our marriage, we'd never made it. We have to be willing to forgive each other. Now, it's sad when only one partner in a marriage is willing to work toward forgiveness. Oh, the beauty of it when two are willing. Now, it's work. We still, 58 years we've been working on our marriage. We still don't have it all together. Well, I do, but she, she's not quite there. <laughs> you know the one that we struggle with the most, don't you? But I'm telling you, the walk, the journey through the tabernacle has been one of the greatest blessings for me personally of knowing who I am in Christ and who I can be as I choose to be honest and open and real about my own stuff. I don't do it out of a fear of eternity. My eternity is settled. I do it out of a longing to enjoy the Jesus that I've preached to you three times already today. He's real, ladies and gentlemen. He abides in us in the person of the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures want us to walk into his presence. So that when we worship as we did, still leading us this morning and even tonight. We walk into his presence, the throne room. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not the church building. That's every moment of your life. You live in the holy of holies. Because the veil is gone. So you just go about your business, teaching school, pastoring a church, being a plumber, being a lawyer, uh, whatever you do, a nurse, doctor, whatever. You do the mundane things of the day, but you never do them because you're a doctor or a lawyer. You do them as a kingdom kid out of delight and joy in serving the King of kings and Lord of lords who is your very life. So that every moment of my life, Every moment of my actions, even at a football game, basketball game, whatever, is a moment of delight and joy. Why? Because they're playing basketball and we're winning? No. I've learned that Jesus is as thrilled for those moments and sharing them with me 
as any moment you can imagine, I'm never alone. He is my life. He is my Lord. And I'm on a journey of learning to enjoy him until I see him face to face. And I've got a long way to go in learning. And I'm just wanting to share a little bit of what I'm learning with you. And the lever is part of that learning experience. We know what the cross is. may not have known what the lever is for. You call me Lord, and so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have been willing to wash your feet, clean up the dirt in your life, take care of the dunk in you, I've given you an example. What I've done to you, you've got to be open in your heart to learning how to be that to others. And may God grant as we walk out of this room, willing to learn to enjoy Jesus, even if it takes the labor. Amen? Amen? Does it make sense? If it does, I'll stop. If it doesn't, I'll start all over. We'll try to say it again. I think, I think we understand. Does everybody understand all of it? No, I don't even understand all of it. But I'm telling you, the journey. It's not the destination. It's the journey. And that's what we're learning. Now tomorrow night, I'm going to take you into the holy place. The candelabra. The table of showbread. The altar of incense. What's that? I'll show you. And it doesn't happen at church. It happens in your third grade class that you teach at school. It happens where you're changing tires in an automobile tire store. Wherever you are tomorrow, that's where the holy place takes, takes place. That's where you enjoy the holy place. We'll talk about it tomorrow night. Then we'll have a QA time at the end of it. Would you stand with me? Every head bowed, every eye closed as we stand together. By the way, before, look up this way. I don't know whether y'all read The Shack or not. The book The Shack. The movie's just come out. Paul Young. William Paul Young is a dear friend of mine. I've had meals with William Paul Young. You know, uh, just enjoy him so much. A lot of controversy about The Shack. I'm not going to try to answer all the controversy. Just trust me on this. Um, whatever you think of the book, whatever you think about his theology, and most of the people miss it because... They don't realize that The Shack was a book written for his children for bedtime stories that he read to them consecutively. He never dreamed that anybody who was an adult would ever read it. Can you imagine? He never dreamed. Anybody would ever read it. It was for his children. It was a metaphor. It was an allegory. And I saw the movie Friday for my granddaughter's 29th birthday. We celebrated early because Papa was going to be gone on Saturday driving to and uh, we saw the, the shack. You get a chance to see it. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful film, which epitomizes what I've talked about tonight. The labor experience. All right? I don't want to pray with their heads bowed and eyes closed. Look up here. Father, 
We're all your kids. Those of us that know Jesus as Lord and Savior, we're your kingdom kids. Am I right? Papa, I want you to know I am what I am by your grace. And I want to be what you intend me to be by your power. And may your spirit in me be released to make Jesus real every moment of my life. And that's my prayer, Papa. In the strong name of Jesus, who is your only son, and my Lord and my Savior. Amen. There's no verse that commands you to close your eyes and bow your head to pray. Pray anytime you want to. Any way you want to. It's just communion with God. And we've all prayed together. Amen. God bless you. Hug five necks. Shake five hands before you go. And if you don't, you do lose your salvation. All right? God bless you. You're dismissed. We'll see you tomorrow night at 6.30.